Welcome to Lithium Iron Rocks, episode 23. That was B.B. King, an influencer of one of the most influential influencers on LinkedIn, Roger Atkins, who is a guest here alongside Keith Phillips of Piedmont Lithium, following some substantial news in terms of permitting and uh, appointment for and timeline for PFS and DFS with their newly accelerated plan to bring 23,000 tons of hydroxide, battery quality hydroxide tons uh, in 2023. Roger has almost 300,000 followers on LinkedIn. Just always amazed when I look at his posts at how many uh, hundreds of likes and reactions and, and otherwise. So Roger, can you just tell us a little bit about yourself and and how um, your background? I saw in your intro, you said from electric guitars to electric cars. Okay, yeah, well, I've been a musician in the past. I kind of still am, I suppose, but not professionally. Um, I did it for about 10 years uh, in my 20s. Um, did a few gigs here and there, supported a few bands. I was a kind of solo act. Music's been a big part of my life, and I suppose, to be blunt, part of that showing off. So the showing off bit now comes to the fore in the world that I'm lucky enough to kind of broken into, I suppose, over the last 15 years, really, um, electric vehicles. So I host events talking about electric vehicles, and I try to learn as much as I can and kind of hoover it all up in my mind. I'm not an engineer, not a scientist, not a geologist. I'm actually nothing clever, like I said. I'm just a um, low-life, scum-of-the-earth musician. <laughs> and um, uh, what I then like to do is share what I learn and try and present it in a way in which I understand it. And that seems to have found the nice, wide audience on LinkedIn you mentioned. Um, and so the background I've got is, after the musical stuff, automotive, been with a few big brands, worked at Ricardo, which is a really cool engineering consultancy, and then for five years, run a thing called Electric Vehicles Outlook, which is what it says. So that's kind of a quick run through. That description sounds uh, almost uh, identical to me, except uh, I'm not a musician. <laughs> <laughs> Rodney, uh, why don't you fire away with uh, your thoughts and, and, and questions? Uh, having just been in, in London, unfortunately, uh, we were trying to do this with you in person when you were presenting at Minds and Money, but uh, we just couldn't coordinate it, but glad, glad we have it here today. We, in, the, in the shift to EVs in Europe, what is your view on um, plug-in hybrids versus the uh, full electric uh, debate? Do you think that, uh, that hybrids will dominate or will uh, battery electric vehicles like Tesla be more popular? It's a great question. And uh, my sense of things is that it depends... Um, on whether you're using a plug-in hybrid to, to drive mostly electric, if you're using it properly, if you plug it in at every available opportunity and you minimize the number of times you have to go to a gas station, then it's a good thing. Um, I think to date we haven't necessarily seen that. I think what's happened with, let's say, the most popular one in, in the UK certainly, and I think in a lot of European countries, is the Mitsubishi Outlander plug-in hybrid, um, Certainly in the UK for a while, a lot of people bought that simply for the tax breaks. It became a fabulous choice because it was a nice big SUV. It was pretty good. And uh, the fact that it was an electric vehicle of sorts, a plug-in hybrid, um, 
but a lot of people didn't didn't matter. They never plugged it in, uh, which was which was not very good, really, to be frank. Um, so I think it depends on the use case, um, but I think ultimately we have to go to battery electric vehicles because the hybrid, when all is said and done, is kind of only half the job. Um, it's more complex because it's got an engine and a motor, um, and and equally, if it isn't driven in the appropriate fashion, i.e. mainly on electric, and they typically only have you know, 10, 15, 20, 30 kilowatt battery packs, um, I'm not really sure what it's, what it's really delivering to anybody, to be frank. The question that we, we keep hearing at, uh, at different conferences is uh, sustainability and, and carbon footprint. How important do you think uh, the, the carbon footprint of the battery supply chain is going to be to EV buyers in Europe when they make that decision? I think it's increasingly important because people are becoming increasingly aware of all the details. Um, but let's not forget there's a twin imperative here, uh, which is clean air in urban areas, cities, towns, etc. And anything that doesn't have a tailpipe delivers on that, you know, end of story. You can argue the long tailpipe back to the power plant produces CO2, but it doesn't produce the emissions that are carcinogens that give people the problem with air quality. So um, that's one thing. And, of course, it's a twin imperative, the other one being reduction of CO2. So it's a fundamentally important thing. Um, so I think the, the, the better way in which the, all the way uh, upstream you can, you can see a focus on um, minimizing and mitigating as much as possible the CO2 content of the minerals, the assembly of the vehicle, the shipping of the vehicle, etc., all of that stuff quite rightly and should come under, you know, real scrutiny. Um, otherwise, we're kidding ourselves that we're doing something that we're not. Um, and what's the point of that? Um, none at all. So I think it's important. It's going to get more important to answer your question in one sentence. Yeah, I think I think we, we agree with that. And uh, in the overall, uh, you know, it seems, you know, the rise of, of a, a sort of climate consciousness do you think, what is your sense about Europeans being willing to buy an EV if it costs more than an internal combustion engine? Do you think they pay a premium to do the right thing? That's a great question, because when you ask it as a survey, you'll probably get, I don't know, 75, 80% of people say, oh, yeah, my next vehicle is going to be an EV. Oh, yeah, I'm concerned about the climate. But when it comes to doing it, probably you only get a quarter of those people. Uh, so what people say they do and what they actually do is, is always different. That's number one. Uh, number two, though, I think the fundamental shift really is going to be split in two ways for EVs. I do think we're going to see mass adoption of EVs quite soon. In fact, I believe it's starting to happen right now with commercial vehicle fleets, electric taxis, electric buses, electric delivery trucks. These things that are urban operating, define mileage and back to base, certainly in any locations where you've got zero emission zones or the cost of congestion charge cost like you have or low emission costs like you have in London. Um, these are locations and places that, that now show that the, the, the cost proposition, the value proposition of running EV um, is compelling. So I think that, that we're going to see two waves. Um, and I felt this for some time, but it's been a while coming for various things getting in the way, um, like the, the banking crisis from 2008. Um, so I think we're now going to see a wave of um, accelerated wave of adoption of EVs for commercial fleets. Passenger cars is going to take a bit longer. 
And actually, that's going to pivot around declining ownership um, issues as well. I think as more sharing options are delivered, more and better public transport is, is delivered, and more innovation in and around using vehicles and owning vehicles will be the bigger shift. In, in fact, I go as far as to say, if we just go and over the next 20 years or 30 years, shift a billion vehicles from internal combustion to EV, that would be a big mistake. We would have, we would have gone down the wrong road, literally. Um, because I think the bigger shift to come is the shift to using rather than owning, because that fits into the principle of circular economics, which is to maximize utilization. And, and the utilization of most cars on the planet is next to nothing. It's five to 10% of their time. So that's the real, if you like, carbon impact uh, of whether it's an internal combustion engine vehicle or an EV, it's how much it's used and, and how many people using it, sitting it, driving it, operate it all the time. Um, so that's been my view for quite a while. The EV revolution comes with commercial fleets and the ownership revolution comes with cars. Volkswagen's uh, strategy going for the MEB platform and doing all of their all of their uh, brands of that uh, of of that base is uh, proving to be a, a smart move as it uh, they can perfect in terms of time to assemble and price uh, is going to play a big role going forward. It is, and I think they're one of these manufacturers that have now done some kind of calculation that says billions of miles traveled can be worth more than just millions of units sold. So I think they're also baking into their proposition this shift towards using rather than owning. Um, and I th like I said, I think that's the bigger shift to come rather than just the switch to EV from, from, from internal combustion. You know, there's a great book from around about 1999, 2000 called Good to Great, um, it's about a bunch of companies in America that went literally from being good companies to great companies by some pretty fundamental um, things. And we're trying to make the world go from good to great now. So if you scale all that right up, it's trying to say, you know, how do we do that? So you've got to have a focus on the outcome. Uh, you've got to have clear leadership. You've got to have the right people. I think the phrase they use in the book is on the bus. You know, the right people on the bus in the right seats. And um, you can go for it. Uh, and, and that's what I think we're doing. And that's where, in terms of what I've learned spending time with Simon Moores and, and his crew, it is what we're not doing with the auto industry and the minerals uh, uh, business. We're, we don't seem to be, um, maybe I'm wrong, but I don't think I am. We don't seem to be considering that industry, given the importance of the battery now and all the mineral content within it, to to really scope and plan and prepare for the future. Um, and that surprises me because whether it's capital market investment in, in mining or whether it's OEM investment in, in mining, it would seem to me that if you're going to lose something, i.e. recurring revenue from friction parts um, by selling EVs rather than ice cars, you should look at finding um, revenue from somewhere else and surely you go back up the supply chain to do that back upstream you, you look at harvesting margin um from some of what are currently tier ones or, or tier twos or, or, or suppliers anyway you kind of look for vertical integration of your business um, i'm very surprised that we're not seeing that happening um and when i spoke to 
I can't remember. It's Lithium Joe, isn't it? But I can't remember. What's his other name? Joe. When I hear people, you know, OEMs say we're going to have 10%, 15%, 20% of our EVs by 2025, I kind of think, well, great. That's a nice ambition. Number one, will people want to buy them? Let's hope so. But number two, are you able to make that many vehicles? Have you actually got your guys in supply chain to write contracts with suppliers of whether it's lithium or cobalt or anything else so that you would be in a position to deliver on that volume? And I'm not sure that's really been done. I mean, you guys might know that better than I do, but I'm beginning to wonder. Well, Roger, uh, this is very much a, a point that uh, a lot of us are talking about in the industry, that uh, where are the OEMs in uh, understanding this? And, and part of the reason we have this podcast is to help educate OEMs who listen to this podcast, executives uh, there, and these are big organizations. They're used to beating up their suppliers. They're not used to looking at all the way upstream. You know, it, it was back in, I guess, Ford bought um, rubber plantations in Brazil for because they were worried about tires, I guess, in the 20s and 30s. So it's, it's, it's been that far back where they've needed to kind of consider that. With Volks, I think Volkswagen and Tesla are the most advanced in their thinking and in their sourcing strategy. I mean, Tesla has had an offtake agreement with, um, I guess, uh, Kidman um, and, and now the, the Covalent in, in Western Australia. They have had MOUs to potentially invest in some other projects like Bacanora uh, back in the day. BMW and Volkswagen have signed offtake agreements with Ganfeng, so they're um, recognizing that they need to secure the offtake. But I think what's going to, I mean, as I'm predicting, next year or the year after that, you will have someone like a Tesla, someone like a Volkswagen actually recognizing that Maybe if they invest directly, you know, at mine level or, you know, through some intermediary, if they could buy lithium for five or six thousand dollars as opposed to buying it for twelve or thirteen thousand dollars, it actually reduces the cost, you know, per kilowatt hour of their of their battery by, you know, a couple of dollars. Tesla bought a company, Maxwell, uh, earlier this year, a technology or battery uh, technology company, just using all of Tesla. It was, it was an all share deal. There are lots of uh, junior mining companies who I think would be more than happy to accept, uh, you know, Tesla paper, $500 million, $250 million, which they could, you know, quickly turn into cash in the market without influencing the price and use that to finance their mines. I think Tesla and Volkswagen are in the lead in this, but many others um, are going to have to, uh, to, to Rodney uh, has a famous quote now on uh, Wired magazine that, um, you know, if Tesla and Volkswagen are to meet their sales goals, you know, their well-articulated sales goals, the lithium required for those sales goals, um, there'd be no lithium available for any other company. So that, that, that should result potentially in, in, in panic, um, you know, buying and, and seeking, Lithium supplies, which is our focus, but uh, some other raw materials, you know, as well. But uh, to the extent that you're talking with those OEMs, uh, Roger, you could be a helpful advocate uh, in the same way that we are, in the same way that Benchmark is, in you know, pulling them by the lapels and saying, you know, guys, you, you need to <laughs> you need to focus on this, and uh, if you need some help, um, you know. Uh, Call Howard and Rodney, or or call the benchmark guys, and uh, we could help uh, advise. Uh, you know the best projects, the best people, and 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 you know help 
secure uh, the future? That because uh, this could be a major bottleneck. It's a real. Uh, it's a real concern. I think it's a massive concern, and, and I, I really like the forensic analysis that, that, that the benchmark guys put, put together because it's all well and good saying, you know, we spoke to a few people, we write some fancy words, here you are. People want to look at data. People want to look at, you know, specific information. They want to look at the material evidence that, that describes and explains something. And I think, you know, that's what I'm rapidly learning from spending a bit of time like I did, you know, over in L.A. at the conference and a few other things that, that I've been involved in, um, that, yeah, I, 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 I suppose I will use the phrase, I'm shocked that, that I haven't seen investment, because if I look at what, for example, Volkswagen have had to spend, partly in the kind of issue around Dieselgate, but then some of the other companies too, you know, a billion dollars on something isn't extreme. You know, a billion dollars is a kind of vehicle program that, you know, a manufacturer might put together, or... You know, two or three billion dollars is part of the investment in Electrify America with Volkswagen, for example. Um, and I mean, you guys tell me, what would a billion dollars buy me in the mining industry? Could I buy a couple of mines for a billion dollars? Yeah, I think, I think uh, Roger, the thing is that um, that VW and the others, what they what they want is, is battery pack prices down to $100 per kilowatt hour. Passing that responsibility on to the cell guys and saying, here's my volume and here's my price, and basically dictating the terms and, and, and delegating that responsibility of sourcing uh, further up the, the uh, supply chain to the battery cell manufacturer, who then passes it on to the cathode guy who then approaches the lithium company. So I, I guess the way they see it is, as far as they're concerned, the cell guys are saying, don't worry, we can deliver but I, I think you know, that's making the road. That's making you hostage to fortune, though, and that's relying on the ability, the capability of people that may or may not be able to deliver. And, and you know, I kind of just sort of think that's not a wise move. And, and if we reflect and consider on the fact that some big OEMs are likely to to struggle or even fail over the next three, four, five years, it's going to be those that don't have this security, that don't have this ability not only to sustain their own plans but like i said a moment ago to find another revenue stream recurring revenue stream from going back into the supply chain and owning some of it so you can then harvest the margin you mentioned the rubber thing you know rubber plantations back in the day that's what henry ford put together he, he understood that and i think until they saw the maturity of the auto industry and how you could make recurring revenue from the aftermarket from friction parts from all that sort of thing and um, they kind of they needed to have it like that and we're kind of going back to that time in some ironic way um so so i think there are a number of reasons why oem should do it and like i said if you're going to spend a billion dollars on a vehicle program if a billion dollars buys you a nice number of mining options um either flat out purchased or you know a big chunk of that that mining operation, then why wouldn't you? I mean, they spend money on vaporware, you know, some autonomous vehicle kind of dream and vision that, that is still going to take another five or ten years or more. They're quite happy to spend an absolute ton of money on that with no material benefit in the short or medium term. 
It's absolutely right, Roger. I was going to bring up that point. I mean, GM with Cruise and Honda, et cetera, with SoftBank, I mean, paying very large valuations um, and orders of magnitude, $2, $3 billion. And, and if you look throughout the supply chain, like the cathode makers, the battery makers, you know, the cell makers, they're not that profitable businesses. A cathode maker or a Umicore is not that big a company. It's like maybe nine billion market cap. So where the money is uh, are with the auto OEMs. I mean, their margins are not great, but there's billions and billions of dollars of, of revenue. And like you say, a billion dollars, $2 billion for something so critical to their supply chain is not a huge investment. And, um, a typical mine, we look at, uh, you ask for, uh, maybe Rodney could help w- with the math here, but uh, a typical project of, you know, five, $600 million that could produce 20,000 tons of lithium uh, chemicals, um, you know, for 20 years, th- that's a good project. And uh, you, you saw West Farmers essentially paying a billion dollars um, for 20,000 tons, uh, you know, in a joint venture with, um, with SQM in terms of purchase price and, and then follow-on investment. You'll have to just take me through that maths again. If they need, they need roughly, they said, which is quite astounding, but they said between Europe and Asia, they need 300 gigawatt hours by 2025. Now, that's well above their sales target, but I guess that gives you the, the build-out capacity for 26 and 27 when they will be selling sort of 6 million cars at, say, 50 kilowatt hours, which Lithium alone would be on a say a 0.8 0.8 kilos per kilowatt hour. You would need 240,000 tons. Yeah, well, this is where the, the numbers I just start to look a bit scary to me. I'm confident that that this narrative and this education is getting out there, and and the OEMs, the auto OEMs, are 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 going to get with the program and and start investing you know in, in a more meaningful way um and uh, the quickest way to, to to make them you know really worried about it is uh you know when, when prices of of lithium start spiking again because of uh um, the, the, these these shortages but it, it takes time from a volkswagen starting production of their id3 which they did just a couple of months ago i guess to um you know, selling uh, mass amounts of those cars, you know, and then that translating into battery cathode and most importantly, the cathode urgent demand for for this high quality. If you're an incumbent industry player or you, even if you're an innovator, even if you're a disruptor, you've got to understand change is going to come in many, many aspects. Um, so it's about planning for the future. That's, that's the message I, I, I'd leave with anybody. Um, don't be complacent. Don't think it just carries on just like it is. You know, you mentioned lithium price and supply. You know, even my small time in getting to know a bit about this, from famine to feast, very quickly, very quickly. You know, so if you get caught the wrong side of that, well, you're in trouble. Well, everyone listening to that, that's uh, another very smart um, voice uh, talking about the, the boom bust. And uh, we're now two years into the bust. Um, valuations very low. Um, I put out a Mr. Market scoreboard earlier this week. And um, so anyone listening here now, uh, it, it is not hot. Lithium is not hot. Battery materials are not hot. I spoke to a bunch of people in Canada this week, and they're saying battery materials, no interest. Gold, silver, copper. 
that is a problem for and an opportunity for the contrarians and value investors, you know, listening to this podcast. Change going to come from Sam Cook and growing up, Bruce Springsteen. Thank you, Roger Atkins. And now an excerpt of our interview with the boss, Keith Phillips of Piedmont Lithium, subject to a longer full episode 24 podcast. Before we begin that, I would like to remind all our listeners that uh, Rodney and I are on the Patreon platform. Please visit patreon.com slash lithium ion rocks. If you like this free content, please uh, contribute what you can uh, from that to ensure that we continue producing it. And please look out for Rodney and me on Twitter, at Lithium Ion Bull, at Rodney Hooper 13, and on our website, libull.com. Piedmont's listed on NASDAQ and ASX, ticker symbol PLL, about a $60 million U.S. dollar market cap. They have no debt, no offtake partners, a pretty clean capital structure, uh, but have hit a number of milestones this year, as uh, we'll discuss right now. Piedmont, uh, unlike many other companies who have delayed their plans, actually brought forward their plan to produce lithium hydroxide by 2023. Today, it was announced that uh, LG Chem and GM are putting together a $2.3 billion battery plant in the Lordstown, Michigan plant. That is, I think, a 30 gigawatt hour plant. I, I saw Sam Jaffe uh, a, a very astute uh, battery analyst mentioned that $2.3 billion is about half of you know, Tesla's investment in the Gigafactory in Nevada for something of similar size. I think yeah, Tesla's is 35. So it just demonstrates how cost of battery uh, plants and manufacturing have come down. Bloomberg New Energy Finance earlier this week came out with their numbers that showed, a, a, yet again, a 13% decline year on year in uh, battery pack cost. So the trajectory of the industry is very strong. Earlier this year, Volkswagen um, put out their, what we call their manifesto, and talked about the sustainability uh, aspect and the hard rock uh, to hydroxide being their preferred route and preferably close to production. Volkswagen has announced in Chattanooga, Tennessee, just a couple hundred miles from Piedmont, um, uh, you know, that's going to be the center for their uh, uh, MEB and ID3 uh, production. The GM plant uh, with LG Chem uh, apparently was, uh, th they talked about making Cadillacs and, and, and a couple of uh, trucks and SUVs. Keith became CEO about two and a half years ago. Piedmont at that time, it had 500 acres, 19 drill holes, and that's about it. Is the story today, two and a half years in, I guess, what, what, is it as good, worse, better? You know, what are some takeaways, uh, surprises on the upside, downside? been a lot of positive surprises. Our asset is bigger than we thought it would be. Um, the grade is uh, higher than we thought it might be, uh, and the economics are better than we thought they might be. So the project we have within this business is that much more attractive than we thought it might be, which is terrific. It's, a, as you said, a 25-year project, 22,700 tons a year of lithium hydroxide at around $3,100 cash, cash cost net of byproducts. Uh, that would be the lowest cost producer in the world. Um, we're confident that directionally those numbers will hold up in the PFS and DFS. It's just that we're very fortunate to be in an amazing environment uh, in North Carolina. The one negative surprise, uh, it's been interesting to see... Um, the uh, strong growth in EV uh, 
kind of adoption by the major OEMs and development and uh, and you look out two, four, six, eight years, it's really, really exciting. Uh, it's been surprising to see uh, the short-term downdraft based on, you know, the oversupply issues we've faced really coming out of Australia in the last year or so, which are uh, clearly having a big impact, but I think will be temporary. Uh, so I think I share a view of most people in the industry where I'm surprised prices are where they are today. Uh, I expect them to be far stronger uh, in the medium term. Uh, surprised where stock prices are for a lot of companies today. I expect those also to be far stronger uh, in the medium term. But long story short, after 20, uh, I guess 30 months in the job, very happy where I am, very excited about our unique project and, uh, and really bullish about the long-term fundamentals for the space. It's the end of the year, so uh, kind of taking stock of what happened this year and, and looking forward to next year. Neo Metals, uh, this time last year, um, sold their 14% stake to their partners, Ganfeng and Mineral Resources. They paid 104 million Aussie. If you do the math, it was about 515 million US just for a spodumene uh, minority stake, although it did give them joint control of that asset. From Ganfeng's perspective, that is very much a vertically integrated spodumene to both carbonate and hydroxide, relatively rich valuation. Then you had this time last year, Albemarle, obviously with their $1.2 billion, uh, which they increased to $1.3 billion, although they restructured that joint venture a bit. But they had every opportunity to walk away from that deal in the middle of this year, but did not. Likewise, West Farmers uh, with Kidman paid essentially $525 million just for that asset, and they've increased the CapEx, I think, to $700 million Australian dollars just for their take. So that was, that's like a billion, 1.1 billion U.S. investment in Kidman for a project for their half share is only about 23,000 tons. I say only, but that's the equivalent size of the Piedmont Lithium Project. So you're sitting here at a 60 million U.S. market cap, and you have these three data points of real strategics, understanding the hard rock to hydroxide, vertically integrated strategy. Um, so I t that, to me, uh, demonstrates uh, you, you know, the, the value of these assets. Uh, I think what's clear is smart money understands the long-term strategic opportunity. We're at, give or take, 2% EV penetration right now. Um, that number is going to rise very dramatically. I think, frankly, that some of the longer-term estimates will prove to be conservative. And I think, I think people understand this is a very exciting opportunity, and there happens to be a real valuation opportunity uh, for investors now with uh, you know, the relatively short-term sort of dislocations. We have the only American spodumene project, so it's interesting. The three transactions you spoke about were spodumene-based. Uh, so having a spodumene-based integrated business on private land in North Carolina is very interesting. It's the only, again, American spodumene project. It's the only American greenfield hydroxide project. Um, and it's in uh, the eastern U.S. on private land with a federal permit for our mining operation. So uh, we feel exceptionally good about our strategic position, and I think um, we're confident to the extent we're interested in partnering or, or having strategic conversations that others will see our assets similarly, and some of those conversations are ongoing. Financing uh, a project like this, I think the economics are very strong. It's in, in it's in the ideal location. There's literally not a better location to be doing what we want to do. So I think I think the financing will take care of itself. I really don't worry about that. You talk a little bit about um, sustainability, even though the carbon footprint of any lithium project is 
relatively small to say a nickel project or you know a, a copper project, but it, it seems to be held to like a, a higher higher standard. The issue of sustainability is, is critical. It's very important. Uh, that was made clear to me in conversations with one of the biggest OEMs in the world uh, when it was front and center of their discussion, issues, you know, transportation distances, what sources of energy we use, et cetera. Um, and uh, the good news is it's really good for our project. So uh, right now a, uh, you know, a typical uh, lithium molecule, as, as uh, Sam Jaffe would say, tra would travel from a South America, say, into North Carolina to be put into a hydro in, to be upgraded to hydroxide, then shipped to Japan or Korea to go into cathode material and a battery, and then shipped perhaps to Nevada to go into the battery plant, the gigafactory of Tesla, then into California. So it's sort of a 25,000-mile trip. Imagine a scenario where we produce lithium hydroxide in North Carolina and on our site and ship it... Um, you know, an hour away or less to a cathode plant, which then goes an hour further into a battery plant and then maybe an hour hour to some car plant. And that's very important for, um, it's very important for the car company and for the big battery companies, the LGs of the world who are, you know, these are major corporations who are very concerned about these things. And it's very good for us. I mean, the good, it's, it's, it's great that it's sustainable uh, environmentally, but it's also less expensive and lower cost and that's important. So it's commercially very sustainable. Big advantage for us that our chemical plants uh, about twelve miles away. So you you defined a twenty five year mine life, which is basically just a subject of like you're having acquired land and and drilled out a certain portions of it. But um, you know the USGS I think estimated there's some seven hundred fifty million tons across the the whole belt. Um, we had Lucas M on the podcast earlier this year saying that uh, Kings Mountain is is greater than twenty thousand tons for 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 twenty years. Carolina tin spodumene belt is huge. Uh, there was an article in an Australian technical magazine earlier this year that identified it as one of the three big belts in the world, uh, alongside Greenbushes and Monono in the DRC. So it's a massive belt, 700, 750 million tons. Maybe 50 million tons was mined previously. So there's clearly a lot more there. We're the biggest landholder now. We have 27.9 million tons of resources. Um, Virtually every drill hole we've uh, we've executed has hit high grade mineralization. There's an awful lot of the belt we certainly don't control and haven't drilled, and um, so I think the opportunity is quite vast. Making it a lot bigger, we think, is is something that's viable. Uh, but an opportunity that I think uh, exists is to really um, uh, you think about all the spodumene in the world from Australia, from places like Canada, Brazil, parts of Europe, parts of Africa. Right now, the only place to sell that material is into China. There's a you know handful or so of high-quality converters in China. Um, everyone in the downstream business, in the battery business, and in the car business is looking for sources of supply outside of China. They understand that China will be a large component of the business forever. That's great. But people look like diverse sources of supply. So... Uh, you know, the opportunity to grow our business by converting other people's spodumene in North Carolina is something that we think is actually interesting. It's something we'll be studying next year. Partnerships are very prominent in this industry, and there's a sentiment in the industry that a junior can't, you know, develop a project on its own, right? It has to have, you know, some sort of partner. And if you have to have some sort of partner, then the partner has a lot of, you know, cards to play in terms of, you know, valuation. We're totally focused on shareholder value and kind of risk reward. So, if we have the opportunity to work with a very strong partner like Kidman did in bringing in SQM, like like Minres chose to do with Albemarle, of course we'd be open-minded to that. And they have great expertise. They have source access to capital. They have customer uh, bases, et cetera. Uh, 
but I don't think we need it. And I will say there are other companies that aren't currently in the lithium business who have expressed real interest in the lithium business. It's very, very rare to find a business that's relatively green. You know, it's a green mining operation, essentially, where demand is growing, expected to grow 20%, 30% a year for a couple decades. It's very unique. That doesn't happen in copper or in coal or in a lot of businesses. So people are looking to get into it. There are a lot of people in the chemical industry who look at lithium and, and understand its complexity, but they don't view it as rocket science. So I think there's a there's an understanding perpetrated by perpetuated by the majors for their own selfish interests, I think, that that gee, this is really, really, really hard to do. The only people that can do it are are the four or five of us that are doing it now. I don't think that's true. And I think when you look back in ten years, there'll be a number of people who've def- demonstrated the capability to produce um, to produce these materials. And some of them will be new entrants. You know, you see West Farmers coming into Kibben. They have, they're a big company. They have a lot of expertise. I'm sure they'll learn a lot about lithium and then they'll develop more expertise. Um, I think I uh, wouldn't rule out others of that ilk that no one's ever heard of before in, in a lithium context coming into the business and uh, playing an important role. North Carolina is the cradle of the lithium business. It all started there. There, There's probably more English-speaking uh, lithium processing talent within 15 miles of our site than anywhere else in the world. So, um, you know, building a team is something we'll be focused on in the first half of next year, and that's uh, an important opportunity. Uh, the other thing I would say is, uh, you know, it's a, it's a it's a business where the people who need the batteries are the car companies. Those are big companies. You know, they're 20, 50, 100 billion dollar companies who really are highly motivated to make sure their suppliers of batteries, LG, SK Innovation, Panasonic, et cetera, uh, can deliver the right quality batteries. Then you go down to the cathode producers, the lithium producers. There's an immense amount of expertise in the supply chain. Uh, those folks are highly motivated to help people like us uh, develop a product that works for their su- supply chain. And those are conversations we're having now. So as a general matter, if you assume a producing company, a steady state producer, would trade at, say, one times NAV. Um, you know, when a project's de-risked, people pay more for it. We've had some really important de-risking events. Um, the first was really making the business big enough for people to care, so we believe we've done that with you know 25-year mine life, 22,000 tons a year of lithium hydroxide, ultra-low cost. Uh, the federal 404 permit for the mine and concentrate plant, huge de-risking event. And then working toward bankable feasibility study by the end of the year with f- all the permits in place. Uh, the business is just worth more. It's closer to cash flow. People can have a higher degree of confidence uh, in it. Uh, but as a general matter, um, the market's going to rebound strongly. Uh, I'm confident. I have no, I pers- have no personal doubt about that. Um, I think when that happens, the big guys are going to be looking for consolidation opportunities, ways to position themselves strategically. Um, one thing they'll look at is for assets in unique places, you know, conventional, high-quality assets in interesting places. We have the only asset of that kind in the United States. Uh, it will have very high strategic value for somebody someday. And our, our job is to position this company uh, as being attractive to the most broad group of possible investors, including those in the public market in Australia, in the U.S., and elsewhere, um, and in in the strategic world with private equity folks and offtake partners and potential strategic partners, et cetera. Imagine a world where um, in, say, 2024 or 2025, we're producing 22,700 tons of hydroxide, and prices are at the levels Roskill's projected, which is the deck that we've used and a lot of others have used in our in our models, and we're generating 300 million U.S. dollars of EBITDA, and we have a 20-plus year life. It's a highly strategic asset. 
And there's an opportunity to grow that by getting more land, drilling more, you know, maybe converting some other people with material. You can grow those numbers dramatically. You can, you can imagine and you can envision, and I do, very, very significant value in a business like that. That's a, multi, that's a multi-billion dollar public entity. This time last year, uh, you know, there was a lot of tax loss selling in, in, in the market. I don't know if we'll experience that again this year because a lot of people kind of took their losses last year. But, um, you know, from around this time last year to May, uh, you know, Piedmont stock, you know, nearly doubled. Things can happen, you know, very quickly, you know, in this market. Any, any final comments or thoughts uh, before we uh, sign off? Well, first of all, Howard, thanks for doing this with uh, with me. I was pleased to do it. I, I think the work you and Rodney are doing is fantastic and really helpful for the sector. And, and again, it's a nascent sector. There aren't a lot of people with real depth of knowledge like you guys have. It's great that you can bring it bring it out to people. I would wish you and everyone uh, listening a uh, happy holiday season and a very uh, prosperous 2020 for lithium investors. Lithium Ion rocks, Lithium Ion bull, and through our respective LinkedIn and Twitter posts, Rodney and I may share with our audience some rationale for a stock for which we have conviction, to own or not to own. If you agree or disagree with and act on or against the rationale of anything said or written in this or any other lithium-ion rocks or lithium-ion bull, that's your free choice. But to be clear, what you are listening to or reading is not investment advice and may not be unbiased. It should not be construed as an investment recommendation to buy or sell any security. Rodney and I are not registered investment advisors nor broker-dealers. Please visit libull.com for further disclaimers.